Hello and welcome to Northeast Christian Church online service. We are so happy to have you with us. Please be sure to follow NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to all our past messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the service. With today, uh, I want us to focus on probably the least, the most overlooked and the least examined person in the Christmas story, which is Joseph. Um, if I were to throw out the parodied version of who Joseph is, he's, he's a carpenter, so, you know, he, he couldn't go to college, so he became a carpenter, which that is such a foolish thing because uh, some of the smartest and most detailed-oriented people that I know are carpenters and roofers because you're doing math and geometry, and then you're you're having you're doing artisanship. Man, try keeping a line straight with shingles. Good luck with that if you've never done that. Try uh, doing uh, beveled edges on something with a router. Good good luck with that. It's 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 not. It's more like an engineer in in certain aspects in that world. And we always parody Joseph as this guy that didn't make the cut for college, so he became a tradesman. What's wrong with that? In fact, the trades are paying better than the college-educated streams, and many of you who have gotten your master's degrees are in fields that have nothing to do with your education. And everybody said, yup. You know, so so uh, edu- I'm a fan of education. I'm I'm a, I should say I'm a victim of education. I've paid uh, tremendous amounts of money for it, but um, I'm one of the few fortunate that it's been in the stream of what God's called me to do, and I've remained faithful, uh, made a promise and a vow, and I've kept it all the days of my life up to this point, and pray that I finish well. But Joseph is not some kind of uh, beauty school dropout. He's not. Uh, a average Joe. Um, even more importantly, I would propose to you that Joseph was probably one of the more educated and incredible men of excellence that the Bible has known. And I'm going to unfold that for you, and we're going to actually take truth from his life to apply it to us. I think Joseph is a great example of what a man is supposed to be. I'm a, fien- I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is basically like uh, men and women are equal. I believe that with all of my heart. In fact, there are one of the greatest leaders that I know, Jackie Stratoff, I would follow her to the very gates of hell. She is a greater leader than I ever could aspire to be. But there are differences between men and women. It's really sad in our culture with the confusion um, that's going on with identity uh, because you want to just look at someone and be like, embrace how God's made you. Men can be tender. There's nothing wrong with that. Men can be sensitive. But there are certain things that men and women do that are different. For instance, giving birth to a child. They might change that, but but here's the, here's the other thing, too, is, is that in a relationship with a husband and wife, in that time where a woman is vulnerable, in that time where that woman is consumed with the focus of caring for the needs of the child, there's a function and a role that a man slips into as a protector, as a provider, as a defender, as a forward thinker. And it's, it's a teeming. So this morning, just randomly, it popped up on my Facebook. Yes, Pastor looked at Facebook on Sunday morning. It was terrible. And uh, it had that song, Anything you can do, I can do better. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. And I was just listening to it go back and forth and and just kind of getting a kick out of it because if we get so consumed with the equality that we don't pause to look at the function, the, 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 not that we're locked into the role. And let me just make a pause, because I could preach a whole message on Joseph and manhood and marginalize every single mom here, easily. You'd be like, well, there's nothing in church for me here today. Absolutely not. In fact, I was just sitting with one of our single moms before service, 
and asked, would it be okay if my sons and I, from time to time, take them to shoot archery? I, I have a membership at a Haverhill Hound Rod and uh, a gun club, and I go there and I shoot, shoot bows and arrows and, and stuff, and just, just like, how should a man treat a woman? Those, that'll be some of our conversations as we're shooting arrows. So how are you getting along with your sisters? How are you getting along with your mom? You see this arrow? Just shoot it anywhere. <laughs> no, not at me, you know? If you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. You know what? Your life is like an arrow, and you need to be aiming for the right things and, and being able to have that conversation. And those of you that are raising kids on your own, you not only have my respect, but you have my deep-felt empathy because I, we weren't made to do this alone. We weren't. Um, it's very hard to do that. And I also believe in being a father to the fatherless, that, that uh, in godliness and with permission, by the way, I just feel led to just throw this out there as a caution as a pastor, since I'm talking about this. As a single mom, you would just be thrilled at any old guy taking an interest in your kids. You should also be very, very careful because that's how people groom situations for inappropriate things. You should really, really know that person. We have a rule in our church, it's called the two adult rule. No child is ever alone with, another, with one single adult at any time period because there's always two people there to protect the situation. That's just pastoral practicality. But Joseph takes on a son that's not his. And I think that every man in this church with appropriate motives and intentions could make such an incredible difference in the lives of others. And Joseph probably made the most significant contribution in this way than any other man ever did or will. And so if you'd help me as I just pray here, I'm gonna ask God to just help me say the things that need to be said, things that I throw out there that are kind of not worth it, would fall to the ground, and that the Lord would inspire us to raise the bar in our life and be the greatest version of us that we could be. Amen? Here's through the, the life of Joseph. Father, prayer isn't some kind of thing that we just do in church, and it's not just some kind of thing that this pastor or these people do. We do it because we believe that you are involved in our life, second by second. You're not to blame for everything because you've given man a free will. You're not, use, you're not causing evil because man and Satan can bring that to the table so we don't blame you for it. But we also believe that you're an active part of our life. And so we ask that you would use this truth, this message of Joseph the righteous, to help us to see our life and live and aspire for more because we're capable of so much more. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the longest standing ministries I ever did was ministry to children in the, in the housing development projects in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, you know everybody talks about the hood and stuff, but we would pick up kids, there would be guns and drugs all over the place, picking up children. It was. It was, it was not a safe, in fact, Providence College was right down the road from one of the places we went into, and um, on a regular basis, you would read about people getting mugged, people getting stabbed, people getting shot, and it was like we were able to walk in there at any time of the day or night and be safe because of what we were doing with the kids. They'd just be like, oh, we don't want them to become like us. You, you take them and you, you, you take care of them, and there are so many kids out there that have no guidance in their life. Uh, but that wasn't the case with Jesus. Imagine if Mary had to be a single mom. She was ready to do it. But God provided Joseph as her helpmate and as his helpmate to raise the Son of God. Story starts in Matthew 18. If you have a Bible or you got it on your phone, I'd encourage you, we're gonna jump around to a few verses. This is starting at verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. 
Someone got a text. Reply to that. It's called multitasking. Here it is. <clears throat> we started on this and we focused on Mary, but it goes into Joseph. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. I'm reading from the ESV. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Boy, how many ladies out there wish that they had a just man that was quiet and discreet about things? That in itself, I hear that laughter. That in itself is an area for every man to work on. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Which means, <laughs> that was redundant, which means God with us. Um, you're all Hebrew scholars now, it's right there. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. How many of you would love to have a man in your life that actually does what God tells him to do? He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph the righteous, Joseph the just. In Judaism, there's two stages of marriage. There's what's called the betrothal, and then there's what's called the homecoming. And I'm not gonna bore you with a thousand different scriptures and verses on this, but the betrothal is exactly what it is. It's, it's that moment where you just kneel down, right? And then the girl starts going, <gasps> and, uh, Um, it's that moment where you are engaged. Now, traditionally, in cultures around the world, engagement, betrothal, and engage, betrothal or engagement, meant that the two people were not living together, sleeping together, having sex together at this point. And then the, the, the period of, of, of betrothal lasted a year, um, in this, in the ancient culture, you know, there wasn't government services or anything like that, so it was, it was required for the woman to have a dowry, and that dowry was entrusted to the husband so that if anything ever happened to him, she would have something to fall back on. I think that an emergency fund is a very smart thing, and so that's really what that is. is an, but it's not like you pay, pay me to take your daughter. It's, it's that if anything ever happens to her, um, then she is able to, to take care of herself, whether you pass away or in some cases where they were divorced. And then there was the homecoming. You brought the wife to your home. You had a house ready. You had a, an apartment ready. You had a place ready, and you brought them. In, in defense of our culture right now, where um, people are kind of living at home and stuff like this, in the difficult financial times of Jesus, it was, and back to King David, it is not uncommon for a husband and a wife to move into a, and build an addition on the home that their parents owned because it was harder for them to afford an entire house. So uh, if you are in a place and you're kind of like, let me just ask this question real quick. How many of you at some point in your life had to live in your in-laws or your parents' home after you were married? Just raise your hand. I see those hands. It's, thank you. There's nothing to be, I, just to throw it out there, this, is, this was very, very common um, and very, very normal. And unfortunately, in the culture that we live in, you might be out there feeling embarrassed or ashamed about it. Don't, because uh, not everybody it comes from resource. Not everybody had a, an, a parent or a grandparent that acquired wealth that was able to go in your direction. It, it, some of us 
are, were, <laughs> I was born in this world with a toothpick in my mouth, man, not a silver spoon. And it's just, it happens, it's okay, there's nothing to be ashamed about that. But, but this is the process of, bet of, of betrothal and homecoming. And then you would bring your wife home and it was there that the marriage was consummated, it was okay to have sex from there forward. And I'd just like to stop here and just make a point from Joseph's life. Joseph, a righteous man. Can I suggest something to you, biblical? Can I suggest something to you, and you can call it old-fashioned if you like, but I'm not trying to live an old-fashioned life. I appreciate the past, but I, uh, I adore the present and the future, but it is biblical for somebody who is, who is showing appreciation to Jesus Christ for the grace and forgiveness that he offers them to not be engaging in sex with somebody until you have made the commitment of marriage to them that says that I won't leave you. I'm, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. We're in this together in that commitment. Call it, call it conservative if you want. Call it old-fashioned if you want, but actually the right and proper thing to call it is biblical and the engagement of those things Jesus calls sin. It is immoral, it is not appropriate. And if I could just ask a favor, if that is your life or your lifestyle that you're engaged in right now, we love you, you're here, we wanna see God work in your life, but please do not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ because if that is your life or lifestyle right now, that is not what you are. So I heard that was, amen was better. I heard somebody say, hello. You are not a follower of Christ if that is your life and lifestyle right now. You are a candidate of holiness and righteousness and repentance, but you're not a follower of Christ. That's not to shame you, that's to challenge you. Your life is an occasion, rise to it. Jesus just didn't come into this world and started hugging it. He came into this world and his message was repent change, turn. Now, what's incredible about Joseph, it says that right there in, in the opening verses in, chap, in verse uh, 18, verse 18, she was betrothed to be married to Joseph and was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And her husband, verse 19, sorry. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now it says, this is, this is probably one of the most loaded verses in culture and language and, and history in the entire New Testament, in my opinion, because it's the most misunderstood about who Joseph is. So. I might be a bit teachy here, but I think it really makes the point of what kind of person God is calling us to be as men and women of God, but also it speaks incredible volumes of who Joseph is. Now, first of all, Joseph clearly is a man that's concerned about sexual purity. He has not been with Mary, but when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, your average guy would fly off of the handle. Your average man would get in his car and start looking for the guy who was responsible for this. Imagine, you know, Joseph popped in his, his uh, cart and just started riding down and was like, where's this guy? And then God shows up and says, excuse me? <laughs> oh, hold on, you know? I mean, this is where people lose it and they freak out, but the point here is it's just to, to, to put it, look at how Joseph responds. Joseph responds to, to, to put the matter away quietly. He's not calling up his friends. He's not slandering her. He's not de uh, de degrading her. He's not, and listen, let me tell you what. At this point, God has not spoken to Joseph. He's spoken to Mary, but he has not spoken to Joseph. And Joseph is kind of like, Imagine that moment. I wish, I wish there was a videotape of it, that moment where, Jesus, where Joseph and Mary were sitting together, and Mary says, um, I gotta tell you something. Okay, I'm pregnant. Okay. <laughs> I mean, how, did, how awkward is that? Imagine how Mary felt when she 
had to tell him. Now, this is the beautiful thing we talked about with Mary last week, right? She says, Lord, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to what you said. That's a godly woman who is willing to do the will of God at the expense of her own reputation, at the expense of, for all intents and purposes, Mary was ready to be a single mom at that moment for the purpose of God. She's like, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I'm your servant. And she's a beautiful example of a woman of God who says, who is gracious, full of grace, and is willing to serve. But here, Joseph is the example of an incredible man unwilling to put somebody to shame. In fact, in, in Judaism, there's a particular track to, um, there's a particular track that reads this. This isn't the Bible, it's in green. Whenever there's something that's not biblical, you'll see it in green in, in the notes. But listen to this, it says, one rabbi's asking another, rab- uh, a student's asking his rabbi, he's saying, what do people most carefully avoid in Israel? He's like, rabbi, teacher, you know? We would say, hey, hey uh, pastor, um, um, you know, Dad, someone, what, what, what's the most important thing that people in, in, in church do? That's kind of like, what do, what do Jewish Israelite people do that's most important? And he replies this, he says, he replies, you avoid putting other people to shame. I think there's a great lesson for us to learn from Joseph about what genuine manhood is And that genuine manhood is is that you don't put people on public display to disgrace and shame them. Now, don't get me wrong. There are moments when we need to care front situations and we need to confront situations, but you don't publicly humiliate and pass the word through the ranks about somebody, especially their sin. And I'm, I'm so grateful that this is the kind of church that when, now listen, when somebody falls into sin, there is no such thing as sin that cannot be forgiven. There's only one sin, and that's looking at the things of God and saying they're of the devil and rejecting the work of Jesus and the work of God. That's the, unpar- that's the only unpardonable sin there is. And basically, if you committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't realize that you did and you wouldn't care. There is no sin in your life that God's grace and forgiveness can't forgive you of. That's an important thing to know too, because if you're here and maybe you're struggling sexually before marriage, or you're you're in that, and it's good. Can I just encourage everybody, please get married. It's a good thing. You know, find somebody who shares your values in Christ, because when your whole world shakes and the plan blows up, you wanna be on the same page with your faith because that'll be the thing that, that keeps you. But, but, but get married, that's a good thing. But, but you might be sitting there and you might be like, hey, Pastor Paul, you just blew me up on the first point there. I, I, all I'm talking about Joseph's life and Joseph, Joseph did it right. And if I could say to every single young man here that has not crossed that line, if I could say here to every single adult that is in a relationship that has yet to cross that line, don't, that's a good thing. But Joseph, Joseph kept things in a way that he didn't want to shame her publicly. And that's righteous. I had a terrible experience of this when I was a young man. You remember middle school? That period of life where stupidity is just a phase, right? At least boys are, I, can I just say, ladies, you are, far more mature than us until your, your 20s. And then after, I think, the mid-20s, we start to get a lot more mature. Um, some of you have a 10-year growing delay, and so, you know, we might be talking 30s, uh, some of you even 40s, but Joseph, so when I was a kid, uh, I was in, I was in uh, seventh grade, and there was this girl in my neighborhood, her name was Tina King, and uh, I'll give my wife the, her address so she can beat her up someday. But 
Like, he, here's what happened. She won't do that. She's not, she's a righteous girl. All right, but, but I wrote this letter. You know, you know, this dumb, how many of you ever write a love, your first, do you remember your first love letter to somebody? Your first, like, you know, do you love me? Check yes or no. You know, that kind of middle, that's middle school, right? And I love that age group, and it's so fun. But I was dumb enough to put in print, like, dear Tina, I think you're so pretty. I would love to, to get to know you better. And, you know, you know, and then you, you really pour it on because you don't even really understand how to say the right things then. Like, I can't live without you and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, man, it was like, it was like the kind of letter that if I gave it to my wife now, she'd be like, that's so sweet, you know? But in seventh grade, that's not how it works. And we would all play at my friend's Kevin, Kevin's house. We'd play basketball, which I'm terrible at. And so we'd sit there and we'd shoot hoops and we'd hang out and we'd be in his house and, and all that. And then upstairs in the top floor, the window opens while all the kids in the neighborhood are playing basketball. And there's Tina with the Wicked Witch of the West. Her name was Danielle. And Dan if you're Danielle and you're here today, I, it's, I don't have anything against Danielle's, but Danielle, she begins to, to read this letter and she, she reads it and Tina's sitting there just kind of smirking. And it was the most humiliating moment of my life. Everyone just go, oh, I'm still scarred from it. I am, I really am. Like uh, I'm a bold individual, but like this person just reads this letter and it was like I bore my heart. I, I didn't know how to ask someone on a date. I didn't understand how that all worked and, and, and all you'd be doing is hanging out and playing basketball anyway. But like, like they just read it and I was just like melted ice cream. I'm like, Ooh. and I just like ran down the road to my house and and uh, you know, it took about a month of silence, and it was just terrible. Just give me one more sympathy, all. Oh, it was just so bad, so bad. Some of you understand that experience. You know, I don't know why it never happens to girls, right? Girls write notes like that, and it's like great for guys, right? But guys write notes like that, and it was just like, oh, it just killed me. But I look at Joseph, and Joseph. He, he'd have none of that kind of stuff on an adult level. He was a righteous guy. See, I really believe with all of my heart, and I could show you through Scripture, and again, my, my belief is, is that if there is something in God's Word that contradicts my belief system, I'm the one that needs to come in alignment with it. But if you look at this book, Men are tender warriors. Men are like velvet-covered steel. When you rub them the wrong way, you experience grace. But if you try to hurt innocence around them, it's like running into solid steel. I have a different version of the flight to Egypt. Herod decides he's going to kill all the children. Joseph and Mary need to escape as they're going, right? Their manhood, right? As he's leaving, he's getting them out. And then all of a sudden, there's a guard that's there, and Joseph goes up, chokes him out unconscious. Finds another guy, whoop, gives him a karate chop across his back, does flying kick. Like, I mean, like that's what we think manhood is supposed to be. And maybe in a dangerous situation, that's what it is. But Joseph was constantly... In all honesty, like in this situation, he was, he was, meekness is not weakness. He's like, we're gonna, we need to go and we need to go now. He had the plan, he was ready, he was on the move. And Mary and him didn't have a tug in war. Like, well, I really like it here in Bethlehem. And you know, there's, he's like, no, we need to get out of here now. Our safety is at, at risk. And, um, and she, he, Joseph, the Bible says, took Mary to Bethlehem when it, she was found to be with child. And that was actually a smart move because he sped up the betrothal process so that it would look as if it was Joseph's child. And she didn't fight or debate him and say, well, let's bring my parents in on this and, and um, let's have mom and dad in this and we'll have a discussion. And he's like, no, no, this is what we need to do. And she, she hopped in with the plan. She went with him and, and that's the way it was. And, and I'll tell you what, love is a beautiful thing because love is willing to do whatever it takes to help somebody. That's righteousness as well where somebody takes steps in the best interest of somebody, and sometimes in a relationship, you just have to trust the other person. 
Uh, anybody see that TikTok video going around called Peel My Orange? Anybody even know what TikTok is? Thank you. All right. Well, there's this new thing on TikTok called Peel My Orange, and, and I've been kind of joking with my wife about it time to time, but, but uh, Peel My Orange is this, is if you're both sitting on the couch and then all of a sudden you just say, honey, I really love an orange. Could, could you peel me an orange? Now, if you've been married for about 10 years, it usually the response would be, you're an adult, you're a grown-up, go peel the orange yourself, right? Come on. But it shows how much you really love that person that you will get up and do for them what they could do on their own, peel that orange, bring it back to them and go, here you go, honey. And she responds like, thank you so much. Some of us need that in our marriage, by the way. We need to start peeling oranges. But, but she, she, my wife was sitting the other day and she was on the couch and she was like, can you get my phone? And I go, honey, yes, I'll peel your orange. Here you go. <laughs> and I brought her her phone. And, and I think Joseph was that kind of guy all across the board. He was like caring for Mary. He was doing things for Mary. He was proactively providing what Mary needed. He, and he was unwilling to put her to public shame. I just think that he's a great example here. Now, Joseph is referred to as a righteous or a just man, but the question is, is right, Joseph a righteous man or a man of righteousness? So a godly man is godly in the sexual relationships he has, but he's also godly in dealing with people with shameful situations. It is not in godliness for somebody to point out somebody publicly. In fact, when Jesus, this is just worth the mention, when the woman was caught in adultery, and they said, by right she should be stoned, what does Jesus do? He kneels down and he starts writing in the sand. And as he's writing in the sand, he looks up, then he writes a little more, never tells us what he writes, I'm not gonna speculate, but he gets up and he goes, any one of you who's without sin, cast the first stone. It's usually the guilty people that say amen to that. <laughs> so then, the Bible says, starting with the oldest, because there is a wisdom that comes with age and experience, they threw down their rocks, starting with the oldest to the youngest, and the woman's there, and Jesus turns to her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. He goes, well, neither do I condemn you. And he follows it up with instruction. He says, now go and sin no more, right? He's not just hugging the world, he's challenging it. Where did he get the wisdom of that moment? I'll tell you who. He knew the story of his mother and father. He knew the story of Joseph. He understood that a righteous man puts things away quietly. I want to be more like that man. I want to be more like that man. And I think that Joseph challenges me there. Now, if you look at the verse that we're looking at in 119, it says that her husband Joseph, being a just or righteous man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There's something here in this passage. It's the most misunderstood passage because of language and culture. The second thing about here, the word that's used there is a Greek word called uh, dikaios, which is basically, it means righteousness, just. Uh, upright. It's the same word that's used when you're talking about the righteousness of God. So it's that quality of God, that attribute of God that we can possess. We, we have the ability to be evil, but we also have the ability to be righteous, upright, just, dedicated to being the right person and doing the right things. And in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, if you were to look at the Hebrew word for this, it says in Ezekiel 14, 14, God is saying he's going to judge the people of Israel. And Ezekiel's like saying, listen, you know, can we do anything here? Can we change this? And God says to him, he says, even if these three men, and then he names three people, Noah, Daniel, and Job, if these three men were in this generation, 
they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Now that word righteousness uh, is tzedakah. Now, even if you know Greek or Hebrew, you're gonna get this point, and this is why I wanna walk through it. There's only a few people in the Bible that are called righteous, and they happen to be right here in this passage. It says that Noah was a righteous man. It says that Daniel being a righteous man, and if you look at Job, a different phrase is used for him. It says that he was blameless and upright, which meant that his life and his issues that he lived that only affected him were proper, and his conduct and his behavior that affected other people was right and proper in the eyes of God. And that's the kind of person Joseph is. His actions vertically towards God, internally to himself that affect nobody else, he was about the right thing at the right time all the time. He wasn't perfect, he didn't get it right every time. There is nobody that has this together, but the, he was consumed, all these men were consumed and dedicated with being the right person at the right time, not only in their dealings with their own behavior and conduct and thinking, but with their, own, their, their behavior, their conduct, and their thinking in the way that they dealt with other people. Now, the Jewish people did us a great favor in the Old Testament because they, in the, about 250 years before Jesus was born, they translated the entire Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It was as if today, if you got a Hebrew or a Greek Bible, you'd be like, I don't speak Hebrew, I don't speak Greek. Someone would say, you know what, it's important that you can understand it in your own language. Here's an English translation, and we're grateful for it. And translation, so we have it accessible in our own language. But not everything carries over well in language. This, however, this word righteousness, is the same in Greek as it is in Hebrew. And it's literally that he's a man of righteousness. Now, here's where I want you to just turn to your neighbor real quick and just say, don't go to sleep. Okay, I know it's tempting. I know it's tempting, and I know I'm sounding very heady, but stick with me. In the time of Jesus, we think that there are just Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And that's mostly because of people reading Josephus, but there were tons of different groups of Jews. And in the Galilee, where's Jesus from? The Galilee. There was a group of Jews, they were very similar to the Pharisees, Who's Jesus always seeming to hang out with? Pharisees, constantly. He's eating at their houses, so he wasn't totally against them. But they were called the men of righteousness. Hatsadim is how you would say it in Hebrew, plurally. The men of righteousness. If I said it to you as an individual, I would say, you're a man of righteousness. If I were talking of all of you in the room, I would call you Hatsadim, men of righteousness. And they are exactly like the Pharisees, except for a few things that they did. Whenever they referred to God, they called him Father. They were known. They were people that believed in and exercised miracles. They were people that believed that human beings were more important than the precepts of the law and that law should always give way to repentance and life and redemption, as opposed to being the thing that kills. They were strongly against the vices of riches, and they were highly, continually saying that benevolence and charity was central to life. Does this sound like anybody we know? This is Jesus. He's constantly calling God Father. And they say, who's this man that calls him Father? In fact, a lot of the stuff that we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're actually having family debates. Any of you who are Italian or French get this. When you get together for the holidays, there's all kinds of fights constantly going on, but they're not fights. 
They're actually just family chatter and disagreement. Now, on the other hand, my culture, Irish, uh, a, an all-out uh, gang war, and that's actually called the family reunion in my culture, and uh, uh, physical hostility is just a part of it, but he's a righteous man, and a righteous man commits their life to righteousness as if it was their career. Some of us are more dedicated to our career and advancement than we are to our character and our righteousness. And if you are a follower of Christ in this Christmas season, I dare to say this, the reason for the season is Jesus, but the platform that it was built on was the righteous life of Joseph who did the right thing vertically and horizontally. God did not just close his eyes and say, it'd really do good for Jesus to be in the home of a carpenter because they're simpletons. Let him be in a poor home. Let him be in a house where people are just average. No. Mary was full of grace and highly favored by God, and that's why God chose her. Joseph was a man of righteousness and a holy, godly man, and that is why God chose him. And if you are really, really desiring God to use your life, it is so imperative that you make your career character and righteousness because you'll miss some of the greatest purposes that God has for your life. And that's, I heard a kid say, wow, thank you. That's, that's the message of Joseph. There's a need for men to place God first, family second, and others third, and themselves last. There is a guild of people called the righteous ones. And Joseph is the father of it. That's what we learn from Joseph's life. It's incredible. He just, he goes to not only handle Mary right without God speaking anything, but then when God speaks completely opposite to what he thought was the right decision, Joseph completely alters his entire path of life and he takes on the responsibility. I love the fact that Joseph is the greatest stepfather that ever existed in human history. And if you're a stepfather and you're here, I love that saying, it says, I'm not, a guy had a t-shirt that said, I'm not the stepfather, I'm the father that stepped up. Now let me just pause here and just say real quick that a lot of us have strained relationships with our kids, a lot of our kids, have grown up completely different to the way that we have shaped them. They're adults, they make decisions for themselves, their responsibility and their accountability is before God and they'll have to answer to him. But even God has problems with his kids. God put Adam and Eve in paradise and they still were messed up. I, nobody ever says this anymore, but it used to be this big thing like, I just wanna say, I come from a dysfunctional family. And it's like everybody in this room is like, shut up, we're all from dysfunctional families. We're all messed up. Even if your mom and dad were together or home. But, but like, it, if you look at Joseph, righteous men shape their children in character and learning. They spend time with them. Now, I had some crazy seasons in my life as a father, and I'm not saying anything I'm about to say to make anyone feel bad or anything like that. But uh, I can honestly say that while I was a full-time professor, while I was working on my doctoral degree, while I was doing a second job with the Center for Holy Land Studies, I still somehow managed to give my kids time. I was flipping through, would, would you agree with that statement, Drew? Like, do you feel like I was an absent dad? No, I, I was going through my pictures. You know how you can tell, don't go through your wife's pictures, go through your own pictures. And I was scrolling through them. And as I was scrolling through them, I saw this picture of Andrew and he's in the backyard. I know, some of you might call me a bad father, but he had a bow and arrow over his back. Yep, I had him shooting bow and arrows unsupervised all the time. And he had a spear in his hand, which he made blacksmithing because he would heat metal and bang it. And we were blacksmithing and I was like, oh, dude, like we were spent, that was right in the throes of that period in my life. And I was like, 
I, made, I helped work with him to teach him how to blacksmith and, and showed him how to shoot a bow and arrow. And I remember all my neighbors, their houses were close and they're like, what kind of father are you? He's building fires. I'm like, he's more responsible than you with fire. Are you kidding me? I saw that you, I saw you. Yep, this is me having to come to the end. So, like, it, it doesn't mean that you have, you shut the world out Friday, Saturday and Sunday, and you work nine to five, and that's just not the world we live in. But it's amazing sometimes you can have quality time without quantity time. And my kids have all of my quotes, but when it comes to Joseph, Joseph was incredibly involved in Jesus' life. Listen to this. This is, this is a Jew speaking from the time of Jesus. He says, above all, we pride ourselves in the education of our children, and, regardless as the, and we regard this as the most essential task in our life, observance of our law and of our pious practices based upon which we have inherited. What's incredible is, is that in Judaism, they continue to pass from generation to generation the traditions and the teaching from one generation to another. This is also why they also teach their children their family trade. And you have so many lawyers, Goldstein and Goldstein, so many doctors, Feinstein and Feinstein. All of these things are because they're heavily involved in the shaping of their children. And if I could just say this to you, I'm grateful for Kayla and Clara, pastors Kayla and Clara that are here doing what they do. I'm grateful for Pastor Kevin, but nobody is the greatest children and youth pastor in your kid's life than you because nothing beats time with your kids. We have them for two hours. You have them for 980. I can't compete with you, but you can do that. What's, what's amazing about Jesus is the greatest, the, 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 great, the thing about Jesus is education bleeds through. You wouldn't catch this typically in, in reading the New Testament, but whenever you taught somebody Greek in the ancient world, the book that they used was the Iliad and the Odyssey, and they used Aesop's fables for children. And so there's this story in Aesop's fable called The Reed and the Oak, and in fact, in, in, in a piece of outside of the Bible, it talks about a guy that was fighting someone as a soldier. It says, he shook him on his side as a reed is shaken by the wind so that he lay there helpless on the ground. Now, when, when Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist, listen to what comes out of his mouth. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? They're quoting from Aesop fables, the reed and the oak, and it's talking about as strong as an oak is, that it breaks its branches because it can't uphold to the hurricane, but the reed in its wisdom is able to bend with the breeze to live to see another day. And he's saying, hey, John the Baptist wasn't just some guy blowing in the wind here, you're just not like of the times that we live in, but he, he is, a prophet of God. What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus had an incredible education in that he was not only bilingual, but trilingual. And I can't explain, I'm not gonna get into this as a teacher right now, but Jesus was fluent in both Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And all of the New Testament shows that. Where did he learn that? Where did he learn how to speak those languages? I'll tell you who, his father. Because in the day that we live in, we put the educational training of our children on the school system, and then if somebody trains the kids at home, we put that on the mom. But when it came to the understanding of languages and the law of God, that rested on the father. And if I dare say, if you are here and you are a Christian family and you are looking to raise your children in godliness, you need to be involved in their life. And I would say this to every single home with a father absent, where we lack, God makes up the difference. Where we lack, God makes up the difference. And so, here's... Here's something I'm just, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and I'm gonna try and explain this very quickly. Two things, ideas 
and this is in language, it's all in there. When you read Jesus and he's taking off, now he's about, he's 12 years old. The Bible tells us he's 12 and he takes off. And Mary and Joseph are looking everywhere for him. Everywhere, they can't find him. My friend's kid took off from them once in a Home Depot, climbed into a cabinet and fell asleep. They shut the whole store down. Two, two hours later, the child woke up, walked out. They were like, where were you? Oh, taking a nap, you know. Jesus is 12 years old and they can't find him anywhere. Where is he? Where's, where, like, where? And you have to understand, if you ever go to like an event, like a picnic or whatever, or a beach, you know, you go there and people scatter and, you know, you're there with clusters of people that you know, but they're looking everywhere for Jesus. They can't figure out where he is. Now you'd go to Jerusalem for a week and then you'd go home, but they're like, where, where is he? Where'd he go? And they find him and he's in the temple. In fact, it's one Jew said this about the temple. He says, when one brings themselves to the temple and they enter the chamber of hewn stone, they see the sages and their disciples sitting and engaging in the study of the Torah. The sight inspires him also to study. When you would walk into the temple, the church of churches, it was filled, filled with godliness, filled with learning, you're crazy if you don't get your backside out of bed and get in here at nine o'clock for practicing the way, because some of us, we know the way up here. The problem is, is we don't know how to practice it. And that whole class is about getting you in being, not thinking, orthopraxy, not orthodoxy, not right thinking, right doing. But here's the, here's the twist that we misunderstand Jesus and we overlook Joseph. When you read this passage in Greek, it, if you read, in fact, let me say it differently. If you read this passage in English, Jesus says, why, uh, he, he asked, didn't you know that I, uh, that I had to be in my father's house? Some versions say it like this. Didn't you, where were you, Jesus? And he goes, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? Didn't you know that I needed to be in my father's house? I spent like an hour and a half talking with a, a profound Greek scholar last night on this. I said, I think I found something. I can't fully do it, but, but, but I need somebody to kind of help me with the grammar here. If you read this verse in the original language, it doesn't read, didn't you know I need to be in my father's house or about his father's business? It reads literally like this. It says, didn't you know I must be in my father? That word business, that word business, that word house, it's not there in the Bible. It's in the English one because everyone's sitting there saying, this is really grammatically difficult. How do we deal with it? And I'm not gonna tell you the reasons why or, but literally it's written in such a way that Jesus says, this is, a, this is a, literally a Hebraism and a Greek way of basically saying, don't you understand? I have to absolutely imitate my father. And when we read this verse where Jesus, in, and, it's, and we read it incorrectly, and we say, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? You know, my father in heaven, mom, dad, you're good and all, but I'm all set, I'm the son of God. Or mom, dad, don't you know I need to be about his business? I need to be about his house. Those words aren't even in there. Jesus said, didn't you know I needed to be in, I must imi be in, imitating. It's a way of saying imitating by the way the construct is there, imitating my father and we just go like this and I would dare say to you that is completely incorrect not only from the New Testament language but also from the situation because when a boy turned 12 in Judaism they started treating him like a man I think this is one of the delayed problems in our culture we're treating our adults like kids and they're still acting like them he treats a child like a man, when you become 12 and you're bar mitzvahed, you step into, for the first time, you're allowed to sit in those conversations with the sages. You're allowed to speak those things and question and even challenge the sages. They want you to practice manhood 
so that you get it right. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. This is something in the Jewish culture that if we were to grab this, it would change us. But what Jesus is saying is not, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business or in my house? He's saying, of course I'm here. Of course you'd find me here. Didn't you know I needed, now that I'm a man, to be imitating my father, Joseph? That's what it's really saying. That doesn't take, there are plenty of Bible verses in, in, there are plenty of Bible verses that will make Jesus talk like his father in heaven. But you might say, oh, I, I don't buy that fully, Pastor Paul, you know, this whole in thing. Well, listen to John chapter 14, verse 12. Believe in me and I say that I am in the father and the father is in me. Well, of course, the father and the son are one. We're talking this, this, the Trinity there, right? That must be it. Well, go a few verses later and listen to what God says. Jesus says this literally, Eight verses later, he says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my father. You are in me and I am in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't you understand? I am I, to see me is to see the father. Not that, that, that what I'm as a human being doing is, is I'm imitating on earth what it is in heaven. And when you become a person of righteousness and you live out your life as a man of righteousness, someone will look at you and somewhere between there, they won't know where Jesus picks up and you leave off. It'll blur together. I dare say to you that Joseph is one of the godliest men in the Bible written the least about. And he didn't mind it because he was humble, he was holy, he was able to change his purpose when God unfolded the plan, he was not out to publicly shame and humiliate, but he graced things over in kindness. I want to be that kind of man because that kind of man sets the stage for this kind of moment for God to allow himself to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. It was built on the graciousness of Mary and on the righteousness of Joseph. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for the example of Joseph. We thank you to give us an example to aspire toward. I know you're perfect and you're holy and you tell me to be holy as I'm holy. But God, you also have given us countless people in the Bible. Daniel, Noah, Job, and even Joseph. That when we can't relate to your divinity, even Jesus, we can relate to humanity. And you can look at us and you can say, if I can do it, if I can be like this, you can become like this. I challenge every man in this place, this holiday season, to give yourself grace where you need it, but to give yourself a higher bar in your life to be righteous. I challenge every person in a relationship this holiday season that has allowed the things that are reserved for marriage to be part of your relationship, to think that that would bring your bond closer together. In fact, many times it's the very thing that causes the deterioration of it. And I would also dare to say for every single one of us in this community that we would love people in their weakness and grace them to the greatest and best version of who they are by being people that are like Mary in graciousness and like Joseph in righteousness, that we would defend, protect, provide, and care for them. In Christ's name, amen.
just wire to there it is thank you lord we just uh, thank you for today thank you for the example of joseph it'd be so easy to point to you in heaven and just say well of course it's god i can't do that but you've given us godly earthly examples that this is achievable that it's doable if we commit ourselves to our character as a career we can change we can improve, but only you are perfect. And so, Lord, I just pray we wouldn't be obsessed with perfection. We'd just be obsessed with the right direction. And so, Lord, I pray you'd grace our people today. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you. I pray next week this place would be filled with people hearing about the Savior that was born to take away the sins of the world. Lord, we pray that many people would come to know who you are as Lord and Savior and make lifelong commitments. They wouldn't just do Christmas and Easter, but they would, they would step into a relationship and a life with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. May you go in the grace of God. Those of you that are able to stay and help with this, we are grateful. We promise just give us five minutes to get Kayla down here and we will get this rolling. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today. Be sure to listen to all our messages on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And follow us on ne-cc.org for all information and updates. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day.